This is Heated, a podcast where we're showing how the COVID and climate crisis stories are actually the same story. I'm Emily Atkin. This podcast grew out of the Heated newsletter I created on Substack. It's easy to find at heated.world, or you can just type Heated newsletter into Google. It'll come up. Today, I'm talking to Aaron Bernstein, a man with an extraordinary commitment to our children. Dr. Bernstein is a pediatrician and is the interim director at Harvard Sea Change, the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Besides being an overall good human being, I wanted to have Dr. Bernstein on Heated because he's one of the true experts on how the climate crisis is harming our health, particularly children's health. I feel like the climate community talks a lot about how we have to make change for the future, but we miss what's right in front of our noses sometimes. I mean, I'm not going to start singing, we are the world here, but children literally are the future that's staring us in the face every day. Both COVID-19 and the climate crisis are extreme health threats. We have to use this moment in time to stay focused on the ways we address these interconnected threats, learn, and then act knowing we're also acting on behalf of the people who are trusting us to take care of them and do the right thing. Yeah, I mean our young people. Dr. Bernstein brings a laser-like focus to what we need to be thinking about as the alleged adults in the room to preserve and ensure a healthier world for children. We're staying at home now as an act of sacrifice to stop the transmission of COVID-19, adjusting our behavior to slow and turn around the trajectory of the climate crisis is the same thing. Please remember before we start, Heated is a 100% independent project. We get no corporate or foundation support. If you've been listening to these podcasts and getting something from them, if they add some meaning or value or context to your life, we're asking you to give a few bucks to make it happen. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can make a difference. Enjoy the chat. Dr. Bernstein, thank you so much for taking some time to come onto the Heated Podcast. Thanks for having me. I know you've been really busy educating people about the connections between the climate crisis and COVID-19. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to explain why I personally wanted to have you on the podcast. A few months ago, the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard hosted this training workshop for journalists on covering climate change, basically just to help us help each other, tell the story of climate change better. And you were there and you made this really compelling case for why we as journalists should be focusing on the health impacts of climate change over everything, why it's just such an important story to tell. Could you make that case for our listeners? Sure. It's an easy one to make. We know that climate is a politicized issue in this country, which is a problem because it has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with reality. And so our charge is to figure out how to make it non-political. You know, climate change is a problem that we all face together, and we need to figure out solutions and not bicker about whether it's a problem or not based upon what political ideology you subscribe to. So how do you do that? Well, one way to do that, and at least as the evidence is, I've seen it shows we can do that, is by talking about climate change as a health problem. And not just as a health problem, but also as a health solution. Even more so, the message is best communicated through healthcare providers. 
And that's based upon research that has been done across the country, looking at a whole suite of folks who could be the messenger on climate and health. And the evidence is clear that certainly primary care providers, doctors and nurses are the most effective communicators. So I think that's a key part of moving forward on climate is bringing it down to size, making it personal, making it about health, and making it actionable, making it something that when we talk about climate change, being clear that when we do things, they matter to our health right now. They benefit our health right now. Burning less fossil fuel means less air pollution in the communities in which that happens means that people are going to lead healthier lives. We're going to have less children showing up in emergency rooms with asthma attacks. We're going to have less adults going to emergency rooms and getting hospitalized with heart and lung problems and a whole suite of other outcomes. Is there a similar case to be made right now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic? I've been working in the hospital off and on in the middle of this. I'll be going back a week or so now. And one of the first children I cared for who we had to dress ourselves as if we were Martians to go see. And you can rest assured that children are generally apprehensive of physicians and dressing like a Martian doesn't help. As I was with that family and child and trying to form a bond through a layer of yellow gown, green mask, and face shield, I realized pretty quickly that if we really want to talk about preventing this, because every time I'm with the family, the parents always want to know, what could I have done to prevent this, right? Any parent wants to know what to do. It, it occurred to me pretty quickly that, you know, if we really want to prevent this, you know, hand washing is important and social distancing is important. And those are critical among a whole bunch of stuff we can do in this mess we're in. But that's actually not going to prevent this from happening again. What's going to prevent this from happening again is tackling climate change, is addressing the causes of biodiversity loss. Many of us have a hard time grappling with the reality that you know we're losing life on Earth at a pace that hasn't happened since an asteroid struck the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out half of life on Earth and the dinosaurs. I mean, you look out your window on any given day, it's hard to grasp that reality. I, I'm first to say that. And so that loss of life and the sort of dwindling amount of life forms we have on the planet is really a major problem when it comes to disease emergence. So if you really care about not having this happen again, you know, we've got to come to grips with the changing climate and with the loss of life on Earth, which climate change, by the way, is a major factor in. Yeah, it reminds me of the testimony that you gave to Congress last year on the health impacts of climate change to children, where you talked about your experience as a pediatrician treating all these children with different kinds of difficulties, whether they be breathing difficulties, vector-borne diseases, trauma from natural disasters, and just how everything that ties these experiences together is climate change. I'll read very briefly from your testimony. You said, I've cared for children with asthma whose lungs have been so damaged by contaminated air they were scarcely able to breathe. I've sat with parents whose children had Lyme disease as they worried about whether their child's half-paralyzed face would ever get better. I've cared for children who no longer had a will to live, having survived floods that once washed away their homes and their peace of mind. And I've held in my own arms infants whose brains were deformed by Zika virus, whose prospects of living a healthy life vanished before they were even born. 
what ties all these experiences together is our reliance on fossil fuels, which when extracted from the earth and burned, damage our children's health through climate change and through the air and water pollution that they produce. How does the COVID-19 crisis compare with those personal experiences? Well, I think the difference is that we as humans see COVID as a virus and we put it in a group of experiences that we're all familiar with, that we connect the dots really easily. You know, People get the flu every year, they get stomach bugs, we get infections. And so COVID presents itself as a sort of new bad infection, and it plays into people's fears about what can happen when infections sort of run amok. And so it fits within a framework that people have already in their minds. The challenge we face with climate is we don't have in our minds a direct connection based upon our usual experience between transforming the climate and all those diseases you talked about. And so that's my job. I need to talk about how burning fossil fuels is in fact causing these problems and making clear that, you know, if you want to address these problems, we've got to do something about that. And that's an uphill lift. It's an uphill lift because it's not within the day-to-day experience of anybody. The other reality which we have to confront is that there are very powerful, wealthy individuals and corporations in this country around the world that extract, process, sell fossil fuels who would rather not change what they do or, or do much, frankly, to accelerate the change we need. And so I think there are real differences. And so that really, in my mind, makes it even more important for those who are in medicine and in public health to talk about this, despite the, the obstacles that may be in the way. But how would you, as a pediatrician, as an educator, talk to an average person about the link between climate change and coronavirus? As a pediatrician, one of the first things you learn, if, if you haven't learned it before you started practicing, is you have to meet people where they're at. If somebody's been smoking a pack of cigarettes every you know day for years and you start off by telling them smoking is really going to be bad for your health but they don't see smoking as a problem at all you're not going to get very far if their mind is not in a place to recognize the reality that smoking is going to kill them it doesn't matter that smoking is going to kill them you're not going to be helpful and so you know i have seen huge amounts of blowback from making assertions about climate change and why dealing with climate change is important for preventing the next pandemic and potentially making the last pandemic more severe. And it comes, I'm fully confident, from folks who are not at a place where they have any desire to go there. And so if I were talking to one of them, I would start by saying, you know, what do you think caused this virus to emerge and trying to get at where their understanding is? I think one of the challenges we face in this era is that science and scientific understanding is increasingly seen as another belief system. And I don't know that, frankly, that's so different than any other point in human history. One might reasonably argue that more people in the world today understand that science is a method of discovering truth than perhaps at any point in human history. You know, education is much more available to many people than it ever has been. I, I think the difference is that for those who don't want to or are unable to see science in any sort of fair way, 
and, and this is not to suggest that science is infallible, but people who immediately dismiss it, there are any number of places they can go on social media or the internet to validate their worldviews. And that's a huge challenge for those of us in public health. It's a huge challenge for those of us in medicine when we're dealing with Dr. Google or dealing with somebody who's being funded by a vested interest to confuse the public about an issue, putting stuff out there saying, you know, the world is flat, uh, as an example. So I think it's really important to get at where people are starting from in their position and understanding on climate change and or where this pandemic came from. Speaking of bad actors, I wanted to ask you about this talking point I saw spreading yesterday on Twitter, because I was on Twitter, which I know is a bad idea, but I'm there all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> I know, I know. I spend so much time there. There's this idea that warm weather kills off viruses. Is that even true that warmer weather would help right now? Because it's my understanding that scientists are still trying to figure out whether this particular coronavirus would behave like that when it comes to warmer weather. You know, we don't know with COVID whether warmer weather is going to matter or not. There's certainly evidence from other viruses like influenza where warmer weather seems to affect its transmission and, and makes it go down. And there's reason to believe that that may be true with COVID, but the truth is we don't know. And so, you know, we can hope that warmer weather will, will slow it down. But I certainly, if I were operating in a public health capacity, wouldn't, for example, change how we're approaching social distancing or travel planning based upon the expectation that the virus is going to be less transmissible in warmer weather. You wouldn't go to see a dermatologist if you had a heart problem. And you wouldn't talk to a politician if you needed to figure out how to wire your house for internet. We, as human beings, are enormously vulnerable to people in prominent positions uh, making pronouncements regardless of their actual understanding of what they're talking about. And so it's challenging in the realm of climate change. You know, it turns out that there, there are precious few folks who in the public health world or the medical world have spent much time in really studying climate change and health. And I think those folks who are in certainly academic institutions are sitting within a cultural world that sort of typifies a world that is really antagonizing and in many ways threatening to other parts of the country. You know, we're the elitist snobs who, you know, are in our ivory towers and just don't share the values that other people who are just as smart as we are and just as capable are around the country have. And so it's easy for people who, be it in even in the private sector or in academia, who really know stuff about climate change or uh, other health matters to fall into a pit, a cultural pit that goes beyond the question I raised, which is, does this person really have the expertise to talk about it? And so we have the ability now if for any number of reasons you don't see climate change as a problem, you can find folks who are in very prominent places to endorse that worldview, regardless of how well qualified they may be. I want to go back to the idea that climate change is linked to coronavirus. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the degree 
that climate change is connected to infectious diseases. What are some of those ways that climate change is connected that we know of to infectious disease spread? Sure. So probably the clearest examples now are not the ones that many people think about. People tend to think about mosquito-borne diseases, things like malaria or Zika. And there's certainly evidence that climate change may already, and certainly going forward, will change where these diseases can be because, of course, they're transmitted by insects and insects can't live where it's too cold and it's getting warmer, particularly in higher latitudes like in the Arctic. And so the control, the temperature control on where these organisms can live is changing. But the evidence is actually clearest on diseases that come into people through water, so-called waterborne diseases. And a good example of that is bacteria that live in the oceans called vibrios. People usually hear about vibrios as cholera, but there are other vibrios, one of which some years ago showed up in Alaskan oysters and got a bunch of people on a cruise ship sick. And those bacteria shouldn't be surviving in Alaskan waters. And so research has shown that as the oceans have warmed, these bacteria are able to thrive in further northern latitudes. In the vector-borne disease realm, the clearest signal, uh, among the clearest signals, is Lyme disease. We see the ticks that transmit Lyme disease, able to live further north, including in Canada, where they've never been. And we have reason to expect that their ranges may continue to shift. In the case of vector-borne diseases, be the vector a mosquito or a tick, it's important to realize that it may get too warm for these vectors. So evidence suggests that malaria, which historically has been very problematic in Western equatorial Africa, may not do as well with climate change because it's going to be too hot. At the same time, in East Africa, where there's mountains, evidence suggests that malaria is moving up mountainsides already and that that may continue uh, higher you are historically, the cooler you are. And in many cities around the world, including in East Africa and the Andean regions of South America, cities were built at elevations that were to keep people away from mosquito-borne diseases. And so the cities are at the cusp of these emerging infections. And so that's a real risk with infections and, and climate change. If I can make one more point, and perhaps the most important with climate change and infectious disease, is that we really are staring into a crystal ball when it comes to climate infectious diseases. As I alluded to, with things like malaria, it is possible that the amount of disease that we could see might go down, even overall, even if it spreads into new areas. We don't know, but it's possible. It's possible the same could be true for Lyme disease. It's possible we could engineer our way out of the waterborne disease problems. But the reality is that given the uncertainty around the future of climate infectious diseases and what we see already, which is a lot of signals suggesting it's probably not going to be good, we can't really afford to wait until it becomes absolutely clear that climate change is a disaster for infectious diseases. The other point is that we know that climate matters to health in all kinds of other ways that are immensely uh, challenging. A big one is on forced migration. So the Syrian civil war, migrants coming to our southern border from Central America, driven by unprecedented droughts in both cases. Populations, by the way, that are forced to move against their will have very high burdens in some cases of infectious diseases, another pathway between greenhouse gas emissions and infectious diseases. And so we have reason enough to act on climate change 
for infectious reasons, but in the context of all the other health problems that arise with climate change, it is one among many. And these are all future potential scenarios, connections that we can make to make us more aware about what climate change could do in the future, might do, will do, that will make us more vulnerable to disease outbreaks like this. But the virus that we're experiencing right now, the pandemic we're experiencing right now, also has connections to climate change just in basically in the idea that it's a respiratory infection. It's something that gives you problems breathing and air pollution, which comes largely from fossil fuel emitting sources that also drive climate change, that's a key factor that worsens any virus's impact on human health. I I imagine you have to be seeing some parallels between air pollution and COVID-19 now, right? Just to be clear, the infectious disease issues of climate are not merely a future problem, They're, they're a present one. And speaking of present ones, the connection you draw between air pollution and COVID is an important one. No one has done a study looking at air pollution and its effects on COVID incidence or its spread. However, we have research done on SARS, which is also a coronavirus, also spread to people from bats. It's a similar virus. It's the first relation to COVID-19. And the studies that we have, which are not many, but the studies we have there suggest that in one case, people who were breathing the most polluted air versus those who were breathing the less polluted air might be twice as likely to die of the disease. And this is in China. We have research from other viral infections showing that in places like New York State or in other countries around the world, exposure to air pollution increases people's chances of getting sicker with viral infections like influenza. And more broadly, we have much more research showing that air pollution is a major risk for getting pneumonia, which can be caused by bacteria and by viruses, and causing death from that. So if that same air pollution is fueling the spread of COVID, which existing research would suggest that it is, that is but one among many reasons that air pollution is a major public health problem that frankly should be addressed. And the evidence from the United States, by the way, couldn't be clearer, which is as the Clean Air Act resulted in dramatic improvements in air quality, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved and millions of hospital admissions and all kinds of health problems were averted, but the economy grew probably faster than it would have otherwise. <laughs> In fact, GDP grew 260-plus percent in the past uh, several decades while the Clean Air Act cleaned up all these pollutants. And there's research that's been done showing that air pollution makes people dumb in the moment. We don't think as well and can slow productivity, can make people miss work. It's a huge drag on economic activity. Reality is that air pollution is a drag on economic growth. And the solutions to address it are enormously cost-effective. In fact, in the U.S. case, it was about a 30 to 1 return on investment. Something I want to just get back to briefly is what you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which was that you were recently in the hospital in a space Martian suit treating children. Are you actively seeing COVID-19 patients? What does your job look like right now? So I can't talk about my clinical work directly. I'm enormously protective of families I may have. Oh, sure. But I can tell you that our healthcare system 
and this includes in pediatrics, is being stressed in ways that amplify its pre-existing conditions. And we have a healthcare system that is essentially now designed to harvest what it can out of elective high-margin conditions, so surgeries in many cases, uh, often procedures that don't need to be done right now, to pay for all the other care that people need on a regular basis. So one might take pause at the reality that in medicine, pediatrics is generally viewed as a money loser, (laughs) that it's hard to make ends meet working in pediatrics in hospitals in the United States because reimbursements are relatively poor compared to adults. Why is that? Why do we value our children less? And so what we're seeing with COVID is, you know, we're making decisions to shift hospital care to adults, which is absolutely what we need to do based on what we know. But then we have, you know, we've already seen stories in the Boston Globe and elsewhere about how people are being laid off in healthcare, how salaries are being cut, uh, particularly how pediatric institutions are being hardest hit because children are being told, don't go to the hospital because we don't want you to get sick. And of course, their beds are being taken, you know, hospitals often have pediatric floors and adult floors, you know, the beds are being taken for adult care. And so healthcare systems are being strained and financially devastated by this. And people need to know that. People need to recognize that all these folks you're reading about, all these healthcare providers on the front lines who are getting sick, putting lives on the line, working extra hours, being asked to do things they never do. The places they work for are being financially strained. They don't have access to the means. In many cases, they need to protect themselves from harm. And in some cases, they're being laid off. And so the, the reality is that that reflects how we pay for healthcare in the United States. It turns out that we have more people using healthcare in some places than the healthcare system can handle. And yet hospitals are taking financial hits. That's a bizarre state of affairs. And my hope is. In the process of recovering from this, we may find ways to address that, that results in greater resiliency in healthcare to when there are circumstances like this, and also, frankly, does more to keep people healthy. Uh, you know, the people coming to the hospital with COVID, people getting sickest are people who have existing medical problems, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and a large share of those are preventable. And if we're really concerned about surge capacity, we need to think about the reality that like a third of the U.S. adult population is obese. However you want to manage the finances of it, we're never going to justify having the kind of excess capacity we need for something like COVID for a population in which 30% of people are obese. Do you think that anyone with any power to make these changes is listening to you on the connection between climate change and public health and infectious diseases and coronavirus? The concern I have is not as much whether I'm being listened to or not. I'm, I'm as a pediatrician, I'm well used to people not listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, what's the right thing to do? And I think it's very clear to me that the right thing to do is to be clear that We have a crisis in front of us. There are lots of things we need to do in this moment to deal with the crisis, which is exactly what the public health science community is telling us about social distancing and washing our hands and all the things that we're being asked to do. And that's what people really are looking for in a crisis. They're looking for concrete actions that can be done to protect ourselves. And so I have really 
no expectation that any human being I run into who's facing the prospect of uh, someone they know who's older than they are, who has some medical condition, who is working on the front lines in healthcare, who's concerned about that person getting very sick with COVID, to be focused on anything other than these immediate solutions to the challenges we face. But that does not mean we shouldn't or can't talk about a reality, which is that no one wants to go through this again. I, I, that's a point at which I think everyone would agree. And if you don't want to go through this again, hand washing and social distancing is not going to do that. And a vaccine for COVID hopefully is coming, but you don't have to look too far back in our recent past to recognize that COVID is not the only emerging infectious disease we have, and we get new ones on a regular basis. And we understand that the drivers of those things are not lack of hand hygiene or our desire to be with other people. So just as when you know you have a heart attack, or you have to go to the hospital and you have your artery stented open, the healthcare community doesn't wait weeks to tell you that you know if you don't want to have a heart attack again, you need to stop smoking, change your diet, and the other factors that we know contribute to heart disease. We're in that moment now. <laughs> I'm not expecting that everyone in the country is going to get on board with the notion that climate action is just critical. I think what we need to do is take the vast majority of people in the country who are worried about this and give them reason to find hope. And just as with COVID, what can we do to get people from sitting around worrying about it and giving them things to do that are helpful? That's exactly the same issue we have with climate. And as we've talked about, the good news is that a lot of the stuff we can do on climate is also good stuff to do to prevent the spread of diseases like COVID and prevent future emergence of diseases. Well, I think we can leave it at that. Um, that's a good note to end on. Uh, thanks, Dr. Bernstein, for taking some time out of your very busy schedule. I know you've been giving a lot of interviews like this everywhere, which to me is a good sign. It's a good sign to see someone whose expertise lies in the realm right between public health and climate change to be out there. So thanks for what you're doing and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Emily. Take care. Thanks for checking out The Heated Podcast. We're producing this in collaboration with Drilled. And thank you to Amy Westervelt for her partnership. One quick thing, though, before we go. The public need for information right now is at its peak but the ad marketplace is not engineered to keep you informed. It's engineered to sell you stuff. None of us are buying a lot of stuff these days, which means the ad marketplace is collapsing, and that's cratering the organizations that bring you the news. The Heated Podcast is different, though. We don't rely on ads, only listeners. We are a 100% independent project with no corporate or foundation backing. There has never been a more important time to support the news that matters to you. So please, if you're enjoying the podcast, consider supporting the team through our GoFundMe page. It's the only way we get paid for this work. 100% of what you give goes to production costs and supporting the four-person team who's producing this series. Anything you can give would be appreciated. But people have been saying that $30 or $60 works for them. That breaks down to 5 or 10 bucks per podcast. Your individual action right now to help cover the costs will make a difference. Please go to GoFundMe and search Heated Podcast. That's GoFundMe and Heated Podcast. This podcast is produced by Heated with support from Limina House. 
Our production team is my co-executive producer, Michael Alcesser. Paul Chufo is our engineer and producer. And Jessica France runs our operations. I'm Emily Adkin, your host and the founder of Heated, a newsletter for people pissed off about the climate crisis. Check us out at heated.world. We made everything we've done available for free during the COVID crisis. Thanks for being here. See you next time.